so tonight in honor of our body parts, I decided to call the talk How to Have an Enlarged Heart. (laughs) And as I thought of the title, I remembered that there was one of the very early Tibetan teachers who came to this country and was instrumental in establishing a number of centers and was a great, kind, compassionate being, Lama Yeshe. And Lama Yeshe died, actually quite young, of an enlarged heart. And I always thought that was kind of interesting because he was a man who had a great heart. And... um, So, but we're not talking about that kind of enlarged heart tonight. So we've been pondering the body and it's 32 parts and more. And certainly in some of the groups that I've been part of, the whole question of death has emerged both as part of the practice and in terms of people's own lives. And the other night we talked about my friend Steve Young, who died so recently in August. And I was telling you about how he really changed his mind and his heart. And he lived his life, the last years, last several years of his life in the Dharma. So again, in his honor, I'm not going to talk about him too much tonight, but I wanted to read this particular story that has come my way and I've been pondering for several months now. It's called The Old Woman's Miraculous Powers. So it's about three monks who were on a pilgrimage and as they were walking along one day, they came across a woman who had a tea shop And the woman prepared a pot of tea and she brought the three cups out to the monks. And then she said to them, O monks, let those of you with miraculous powers drink tea. So the three guys looked at each other, right? What are they going to do? And actually in the monastic um, tradition, if you have any kind of extraordinary powers, you're not supposed to show them. You know, that's not something that you're public about. So even if one of them thought he did, he wasn't going to demonstrate it in front of the other guys because then he'd been breaking the rules. So there's just dead silence. So the woman said, the old woman said, watch this decrepit old woman show her own miraculous powers. And then she picked up the cups, poured the tea, and went out. So, not complicated, huh? It's just pouring the tea. Just pouring the tea. That that's enough, that's miracle enough, is to be able to pour the tea. And we so often do the thing that I also talked about the other night with the Rube Goldberg thing, you know. They drop the 
this and then that moves and then the seeds fall into the pail which tips and ultimately the pulley comes across with the napkin that wipes your chin. We get things to be way, way more complicated than they are. But you know, one of the things that Steve did was he lived his life one day at a time, one minute at a time, and you are doing that here. You're, you're changing your mind and your heart one day at a time. It's simple, right? It seems really simple. The instructions are so simple. You, know, you come in, you sit down, we say, follow your breath, be in your body, come back every time you wander off. Has it been easy? You know, and I haven't heard anybody this week some people are having better retreats, whatever that is, than others. But for the most part, you're all doing an astounding piece of work. In this process of changing, awakening the mind and the heart, one retreat doesn't do it. And one MBSR class, even if Bob is teaching it, that won't do it either, you know? And one book won't do it, and listening to one Dharma talk won't do it. It's a lifetime project, this thing of doing the mind and the heart. It's kind of, I think of it often as like caring for a garden. And if any of you have gardened, and most of us have at one time or another, you know how easy it is for them to get out of hand, you know. You go away on vacation, somebody forgets to water, nobody weeds, three weeks later you come back and it's a mess. And the mind is exactly the same way, you know. And so we walk away from it for a while and then we come back and you sit down on your cushion. I notice that in my own life. If I get really, really busy, going very, very fast, sometimes not thinking so carefully, and then I stop and I sit. And it's, whoa, you know, look at all the, the mind is agitated, it doesn't settle easily. It takes a while then of the training to get, sort of get back in shape, if you will. So the earmark, one of the earmarks, of a well-developed, quite awake person is a great and spacious heart. A great and spacious heart. Somebody mentioned Ashton here the other day about the Dalai Lama. I always think of him when I think of a great-hearted being because he's so astounding with his great heart. And I've had the great privilege of being around him a few times. And it's amazing, you know, he, he always can sort of suss out in the room where there's somebody who's in trouble. And he always goes right for them, wants to check in, how are you doing? What can I do to help? It drives his secret service agents nuts, you know, because he's always moving around. So here's a reading. This was in honor of one of the early teachers in the Vipassana world who came over from Asia, a woman whose name was Deepama. And this was written shortly after she died. It says, What is your heart like? That's what they wanted to know. They brought in someone who had just died, Deepama. They proceeded to open up her heart. You wouldn't believe what was in there. You wouldn't believe it. White people, black people, atheists, rich people, poor people, drunkards, prostitutes, priests, politicians, 
children, judges, baseball players, cranks, and me, even me. How did I get there? Is that what I will be like when I die? When they open up my heart, what will they find? When they open up your heart, what will they find? So how do we do this? How do we enlarge our hearts, make them the great hearts of these beings? So I'd like you to invite you for a moment to close your eyes and we're going to do a little work in the imaginal realm. So you could imagine that you are members of a monastic community, monks and nuns, and it's quite a long time ago, maybe a few hundred years, and your monastery is located some miles away across all of these hills, across these beautiful golden ridges that we have here. And you've come here to visit this other center, Spirit Rock, or whatever it might have been called, in the heart of the coastal hills. And you've come for a few days to receive some teachings from the Buddha. So now the teachings are over, and it's nighttime, and it's time to return. And you're going to go, even though it's night, and you're going to hike several miles home, up over the ridges and down into the ravines and through the forest, all the animals and things that are out there. There are no headlamps or flashlights because this is a long time ago. So maybe there's only a couple of torches, maybe one at the head of the line and one at the foot. And you know, you know about those wild animals and you know that there are tree spirits that are very mischievous and you are very, very scared of what lies ahead in the dark. So the Buddha, in his great and compassionate way, sees that this group of all of you, all of you monks and nuns, are afraid and he tells you that he has some instructions for you a practice for you to use as you walk through the dark night. So this is what he says to you. He says, this is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties, and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove, wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, 
those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. So now you can come back. So here at this retreat, we are in fact just like those monks and nuns. We are the monks and nuns of this retreat. And we're hiking off into the darkness of our bodies and our hearts and our minds. And we never know what we're going to find. I'm sure I know. Many of you have found things that you didn't know that you were going to find when you were sitting. And sometimes we get really scared about what's happening or what might happen to us. Sometimes the fear is what's going to happen to us here on the cushion. You know, what's this weird thing that's going on in my body or my mind or my heart? Or what's going to happen out there, some, some thing that's going on in the world? So insight practice, vipassana, is known, as I think we've said in here, I've said it in the group anyway a number of times, to be a purification practice as well as a wisdom practice. So it's very apparent by now you've come to the garbage dump and here's your stuff. And so when our stuff comes up, whatever that stuff is, you know, the heart contracts, And it feels like it becomes very small. And we become often really afraid. And so maybe it's the body that is wounded or ill or in pain. Or maybe it's the world outside. So, you know, it's... And in here there's lots of fear. There's the... The body that that is doing whatever it's doing, it's the state of the mind. Sometimes it's simple things. I often hear, I think I'm swallowing too much in the hall. That's that body part, right? That's saliva, right? Or coughing, there's the phlegm again. Or sometimes that large intestine, mm -mm, it rumbles around in the hall. And people get really, really anxious. You know, what, what are my neighbors thinking and is this bad and should I leave the hall or, or whatever because they were not sure. Or sometimes the fear, you know, is the big fear. It's death itself. 
So I want to talk a little bit about fear tonight and as we talk about the heart because fear is so pervasive. Everyone has it. There is no one in this room who is totally unafraid. I'm afraid. Marcy's afraid. Bob is afraid. We're all afraid. And you're all afraid. So it's really important to get to know what is this mind state that is fear and to notice what it is so as to know best how to work with it. So here's some things to observe. One is that fear is not now. Fear is always about the future. If the bear has your elbow, you're probably actually coping. But the mind is going on to, oh my goodness, what if he gets my head? Because that's where the fear is. Now is often, always, manageable. It may not be pleasant. It may be really, really hard. But it's manageable. And it's constantly changing. Fear tends to get focused on and and see things as being really solid and it's often focused on this very concrete sense of me, of self. Me, mine, and what's going to happen. And it's often very attached to a very particular outcome and there's lots and lots of clinging involved. And so when we're afraid the heart and mind, and often the body too, because we all have that sense of fear. You know how, have you ever been, like there's a, a bug that thinks you're going to squash it? And, and maybe you're not, but the poor little bug, you know, curls up on its back and pulls in all its legs and it just makes itself as small as it possibly can. We do the same thing. Sometimes we can't breathe. Sometimes we hyperventilate. We feel trapped and we can't move. We get scared, and there is no space. As we study our fear, we begin to see some of these things. We see that it's about the future, and we see that fear comes and goes. It's a mind state. It's a conditioned mind state. Some years ago, I had one of those doctor's visits, you know, that you don't want to have. And they found, I had some symptom, I actually don't even remember now what it was, but they were worried about, did I have something going on in my kidneys? You know, maybe like a cyst or maybe even kidney cancer. And so I had to go in and have a CAT scan. So you know what happens when you've got that kind of thing. So I went home, I had several days to go before I could have the scan. And I'm really good at getting very anxious and very scared, and I did. And I had, of course, kidney cancer several times over and ran my funeral a number of times and thought about my will and worried about what was going to happen to my kids and my husband and... Over and over and over. But fortunately, I was already practicing at the time. And so after a bit, I began to notice that I would be afraid. And then I wasn't afraid. 
And then I would be afraid. And then I wasn't afraid. And I began to see that it was coming through like these waves, you know. So after a while, with a lot of gratitude, I began to recognize the wave as it came through. And I knew it was just a wave. And some of the waves, like waves do, you know, picked me up and smashed me down on the ground and I'd sort of stagger around for a while from my fear attack. And sometimes I did probably the equivalent of a little bit of body surfing, you know, and rode the wave and got in and it was okay. They are conditioned mind state. It's a mind state that arises out of past events, previous experiences of our own and others, and we can observe it and note it and wonder if it's a good idea to listen this time. It's so important. I don't know how many times we've said it this retreat, but I'm going to say it one more time. You do not always have to believe your mind. Do not always believe your mind. Don't. I have a Buddha at home that's um, actually just, it's a, a small copy of the one that they have up at Abhayagiri. So he has this mudra. And this mudra is the Abhaya mudra, that's why he said Abhayagiri. And it is the fear not mudra. Fear not. But it's just like what in our culture? Stop, right? Stop. So I love that, that this is fear not and stop. Because it reminds me, oh, I could stop. Maybe I should stop for a minute. Stop being so afraid. Stop being so anxious. And pay attention. So what happens when we do stop? And so we see that when we're afraid, we're kind of confused, we don't see clearly. It's often got some elements of aversion. Fear is a form of aversion, actually. There's usually some sense of danger and vulnerability, and we want out. And in that place, we often react rather than responding. And it's very hard not to react. It is. And often, as we noted the other night, when we do react, it comes out of reaction and not response, we make things worse. Our friend Tanisaru Biko likes to say, although aging, illness, and death follow inevitably on birth, delusion doesn't, which is very good news. So how can we respond to this rather than reacting in a deluded way? So here, we've been doing mindfulness practice and we've been being with your minds and hearts and today we even began to work with the thoughts in the mind and it's recommended that we actually can begin to recognize, you know, a thought is just another sensation going through, just like an itch or a sound or a twinge in your knee. It's just a thought. And some of them are useful and some of them are not. And one of the things that you've all been recognizing is this state of fear. The Buddha didn't say, though, to this group of monks, in fact, I would have been annoyed if he had, he didn't say, well, just be mindful, you'll be fine. He didn't do that, did he? He gave them the metta sutta. And he said that as they went out on this journey, that they would be most helped by opening the heart and by the practice of metta. 
So in order to have the steadiness that we need, mindfulness is a great start. But we also need a spacious and open heart and one that does not judge or fear, a heart that is big enough to listen. And we need a heart that's so big that we can even hold our own little scared selves, you know, right up against your body. And you can pat yourself on the back and say, oh, poor boo-boo, you are really scared. You can do that. So there are teachings and practices that support this healthy enlarging of the heart, if you will. So I want to talk about two different sets of them tonight. First I want to talk about a few teachings from the Tibetan world that really help in meeting our experience with openness and humor. I've been mentioning, if any of you like these ones that I'm about to talk about, um, there's a wonderful new book out, and we have it down in the bookstore, by a man whose name is Norman Fisher. And Norman Fisher is a good Jewish boy who's a Zen priest who's teaching this Tibetan practice at Theravadan centers like this one, so he gets around. And um, it's called Training in Compassion. And it is, I think, one of the best practice books I have ever read anywhere, bar none. So. so it's a book that talks about a set of very short, pithy Tibetan teaching slogans, and I'm only going to address three of them tonight. But they're very, very helpful in allowing the heart to get a little bigger in the face of fear and difficulty. So the first one says, turn all mishaps into the path. Turn all mishaps into the path. So what this is saying is there's nothing that is outside the realm of practice. Isn't that great? There's nothing. Nothing can happen to you that you cannot practice with. You might run away, but it is still possible to practice there. So no matter what comes up, on or off the cushion, this is your path the itch, the grief, the injury. Think of our friend Cindy Campos who who broke her ankle and sprained the other one here the other day. That's her path now for these next probably months as she goes through her healing process. That becomes the path that she's walking and that becomes her practice. If you go off and get married as some people I know are doing this weekend, guess what? That relationship becomes part of your practice. Everything turns into practice. Not all of them are mishaps. We hope the marriage is not a mishap. But it's still practice. And it might be. It might be, isn't it? Sometimes the difficulties in relationship become your path. Nothing is a distraction. Cool, huh? So you're sitting here, you're meditating, you're being with your breath. It's so easy to say, oh, it's a distraction, it's a problem. Uh Uh-uh. This is your path, this is your practice. You've got the heavy breathing neighbor right next to you. You know, that's your teacher, that's your practice for this period of time. We just take it in and become mindful of it. It's a little interesting Aikido kind of move, you know, where you turn into it instead of away from it. Similarly, the second one, be grateful to everyone. Be grateful. 
Another version of this says, every being that you meet is your teacher, no matter what he or she is doing. Or another way to say it is, every being you meet is enlightened but one. And you know who the one is. And they are doing what they're doing in order to help you wake up. So you laugh, right? I laughed too. Try it. Try it out there. Because it's a tough teaching. We don't want to admit that that person is enlightened, even if they're not. But even taking it that way, so it's a teaching that's really hard. You know, so... There you were in line the other night. There were those good-looking cookies that had the little sugary stuff on them. And someone came along and took the last one. You know, that's the enlightened being doing what he or she is doing in order to help you wake up. (laughs) Or you walk out the back door and someone steps in and takes your walking path. Your very special path under those trees at that place on the trail that is smooth. Or maybe you're driving on the freeway and someone parks themselves right in front of you and they're only going 48 in a 65 mile an hour zone. And you're stuck. This is your path. It's your path. It's not a problem. It's a practice. Isn't that interesting? It's very... So the heart, when we do this, the heart begins to go, oh, okay. It's a practice. I can do this. I've often thought, actually, I think slow walking is the greatest gift in, in our practice here because I'm, I'm okay. If I get stuck behind someone and it's really slow, it's like, all right, it's slow driving. I can do, if I can do slow walking, I can do slow driving for a while. It becomes a practice. It's a great thing. So what do you have to learn in each of these situations? And if your heart closes... Be grateful to that because it's showing you that there's something to learn. You know, if greed and hatred and delusion take over, you can notice it and go, aha, here is where I'm not fully cooked. I've got something to do so that my heart will not shut down under these circumstances. It's where I need to wake up more. Thank you not an easy practice. So then the third one, one of my all-time favorites, says, do good, avoid evil, appreciate your lunacy, and pray for help. (laughs) So the first two are pretty obvious and pretty easy here on retreat. You've probably all been pretty well behaved. And, um, you know, you've done good and you've avoided evil. And it's actually a pretty basic life practice. Most of us, I think, imagine most of us in this room work hard at trying to do good things and avoid evil things. And actually, you know, sometimes people want to know, well, how am I going to know if my practice is going well? And one of the things to consider is, how are you doing with the precepts? Are you doing well at doing good and avoiding evil? And if you're doing well with the precepts, even if your sitting's been a bit wobbly or haven't been to a retreat recently, probably your practice is in at least okay shape. It's kind of interesting. But do you appreciate your lunacy? 
Now that's an interesting place. Can you have a sense of humor about this whole thing? You are seeing here on the retreat how difficult and crazy the mind can be, how your personality is bent on being your personality, even here where it doesn't have to be, you know? And it's been, for me, it's been one of those things where as I've gotten older, so I don't know whether it's practice or age, but I'd like to think it's practice, and sometimes I can see my Mary Grace Orr personality going off and doing her neurotic thing one more time. And it's like, there she goes. I can't believe she's doing it again. But I am doing it again. But it helps to hold it that way. It's like, oh, I am sometimes so crazy. I am such a lunatic. So here's one of my favorite retreat poems. Lost my glasses. Where did they go? Thank you. Um, That is about holding something with a sense of humor. It's called Another Reason Why I Don't Keep a Gun in the House. (laughs) The neighbor's dog will not stop barking. He is barking the same high rhythmic bark that he barks every time they leave the house. They must switch him on on their way out. (laughs) The neighbor's dog will not stop barking. I close all the windows in the house and put on a Beethoven symphony full blast, but I can hear him muffled under the music, barking, barking, barking. And now I can see him sitting in the orchestra his head raised confidently as if Beethoven had included a part for barking dog. When the record finally ends, he is still barking, sitting there in the oboe section, barking, his eyes fixed on the conductor who is entreating him with his baton, while the other musicians sit in respectful silence to the ba- listening to the famous barking dog solo, that endless coda that first established Beethoven as an innovative genius. <laughs> so that's appreciating lunacy, right? That's a, and really meeting this difficulty with humor. And please ask and pray for help. Ask us, ask your spiritual friends and guides, ask any beings you want, whether they're in this realm or another. I actually suspect it's the asking that's important, you know, admitting that we do indeed need help. Whatever you meet is the path. Nothing is outside practice. Can we meet every event with friendliness and curiosity and maybe even a bit of humor? This is what begins the enlargement of the heart. And then there are some specific practices. So these begin to change the attitude of the mind, the practices of metta, of friendliness and kindness, of karuna, of compassion, of mudita, which is the practice of gladness and joy, appreciating both your own and others, and upekka, which is the practice of equanimity. Some people sometimes think maybe there's a practice called council house, 
because we have four dormitories and then there's council house. But so far as I know, there is no practice called council house. So these change the attitude of the mind. You know, one author, a man by the name of Alan Wallace, has written a book about compassion called Buddhism with an Attitude. So this is developing a particular stance, a particular attitude. And it is also said that doing these practices are like, is like digging drainage ditches in the mind. And that's a teaching that comes from Tibet. So I always think of that high Himalayan, rocky, frozen Tibetan soil. That's what my mind is like. And digging drainage ditches up there is not easy. So you are digging drainage ditches in this hard, rocky soil to create more space, to create openness, to create a place for the mind to flow. So in metta, the sutta starts, remember this is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness. So it's reminding us that this is a skill, this is a training. You don't just decide to have metta. Wouldn't that be nice? It would be so easy. You know, I'm just going to be friendly to all beings and spread kindness throughout the world. It doesn't happen that way. It's a really a long, long, long training. And the Buddha taught the sutta to these monks so that they could extend kindness out into the darkness as they walked along, extending their good wishes to all beings, to the ones that they were easy to like, and then to those that are frightening. And that's the nature of this practice. We start with the beings that are easy, and then we extend it gradually more and more out to those who are difficult. And we always, always, always include ourselves. The Buddha says there is no one more worthy of your loving kindness, of your metta, than yourself. No one more worthy Try that one on for size. There's no one more worthy than yourself. There are traditional phrases. We've done some of them here in the hall. We'll probably do another good long period of metta tomorrow, I would imagine. And then there's your own phrases. And you can, so traditional ones are things like, may I be happy and may I be peaceful. May I have ease of well-being or may I be healthy. May I be protected from harm. But, you know, sometimes people have done things like, honey, I just love you. You know, you could try that. Or I'm fine just the way I am. That's another really good metaphrase. So you can make up your own. It's also really important to say this is not a wimpy practice. This doesn't mean you just kind of in a namby-pamby way like everyone. It can actually be very ferocious. Sometimes the kind thing to do is to be strong, to say something that needs to be said, to protect someone who needs to be protected. I always think of a mother of a two-year-old when I think of this, because a mom of a two-year-old has to be really ferocious sometimes. No, you cannot run out into the street and you grab that little kid by the scruff of his neck and haul him back in because you're scared and you don't want him to be squashed. And that's what is the kind thing to do in that moment. One important aspect of loving-kindness is forgiveness. Um, And I want to touch on it because it's often a really tricky place where most of us carry around old 
wounds and guilt and the heart is really contracted. (coughs) And for some of us, really, really terrible things have happened. Really terrible things. And so it's really also important to say that forgiveness is not about pretending that something didn't happen. It's not that at all. And it's not quick. It can take a long time. You don't just say, okay, I've decided I forgive you now. It's rarely that easy. And sometimes we forgive ourselves and sometimes we have to forgive others. And I'm looking for a quote that I've misplaced. Hmm. Well... Maybe it didn't come through. Hmm. So one of the quotes I wanted was from Henri Nouwen, and he talks about how forgiveness is the practice of love practiced among those who love poorly, all of the human race. And all of us love poorly, and all of us need to learn how to forgive. And why we do it is to keep our hearts from shutting down. Whether the other person ever actually directly receives the forgiveness or not is not as important as that you extend that forgiveness, practice opening the heart so that your heart doesn't shrink and become scarred with hatred and anger. Every one of us has been injured. Every one of us has caused harm. Every one of us has the potential of all the behaviors that are possible in ourselves, the good ones and the difficult ones. When we own this, actually, when we begin to realize, oh, I could do that, the judgment and the criticism criticism begin to subside. It was a very interesting moment many, many years ago both of my daughters are well into their 40s now so when they were really little and I realized that I was capable of picking one of them up and throwing her against the wall I didn't do it, I'm glad but I could have done it and I could feel that I had that you know like I was really upset and angry and tired of whatever she was doing in that moment so when we remember that it helps us to keep the heart open when other people have done equally difficult things and haven't been able to withstand that urge. We remember fully and keep the heart open. So here's a reading from Desmond Tutu. He says, I think back to my time as the chair of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa. A hearing that will forever be imprinted on my memory was an investigation into the shooting of unarmed demonstrators by members of the armed forces. The hall in which the hearing took place was packed to the rafters with a crowd who were justifiably angry. The tension was palpable. Four soldiers entered and their commanding officer admitted delivering the instruction to open fire. He turned to the crowd and asked, Please forgive me. The crowd then did something that none of us could have predicted. 
they broke into wild applause. When the applause subsided, I turned to my fellow members of the commission and said, let us be quiet because we are in the presence of something truly holy. Forgiveness is never easy or cheap. It isn't something you can demand of others. Forgiveness is a deeply personal journey to reconnect with the whole of humanity around you and therefore to reconnect with yourself. It is essential because it reveals how we are inextricably bound to each other. As I have said before, there is no future without forgiveness. So we practice this practice of kindness and goodwill, extending our friendship to all beings, and then the world actually becomes safer for us because we have fewer enemies. It's amazing. So there's three other trainings that I want to touch on at least briefly. One is the training of compassion, karuna, which literally means the quivering of the heart. And you've actually been doing some training in compassion with mindfulness practice. It's mindfulness practice is, I think, one of the best trainings because you've been sitting with your pain and your difficulty. And as you sit with your pain and your difficulty and you don't push it away and you don't get up and leave the hall, you just sit. That opens the heart. I had a retreat once and at the end of which I had this thought that went through and I thought it was such a good teaching. It said, mindfulness is the best mother. Mindfulness is the best mother. So, you know, as events happen around us, besides the ones in your body, even here at the retreat you can practice. The person who is constantly blowing their nose or constantly clearing their throat or always wiggling and changing their posture or weeping. And is it possible then to let your heart quiver and to practice opening the heart? There are phrases that you can extend, you know, extend compassion for another person's pain. I actually prefer a very simple Tibetan practice where you breathe in the suffering of the other person and then you breathe out compassion. Because as you breathe in that suffering, the heart does quiver. It's actually quite interesting. The heart shifts and changes, and then you breathe out the compassion. So you could try it. Try it here in the hall, maybe, when something comes up. There's a similar practice. I always think of this as sort of metta is the umbrella practice, and then you have compassion. And then over here you have the practice of mudita, or sympathetic joy, or gladness, where you're really appreciating your own joy and happiness. We're so good at focusing in on the suffering in this practice. We're so good at it that our good teacher, James Barrows, who's part of our teacher collective here, has gone and invented a course called Awakening Joy because Buddhists get kind of grim sometimes. And he thought it might be a good idea if we really learn to also recognize and practice that which is joyful. So, you know, here you are in this place. And several of you talked about it today, how much you were appreciating just being on retreat. You know, this beautiful land, this astounding building, the food. 
So as you're happy, maybe in this next day of the retreat, really reflect on it and enjoy it. Let yourself take it in. And you know what? It actually will support the rest of your meditation practice. Taking a few minutes, like at the beginning of a sitting, to reflect on your happiness actually strengthens your concentration. You concentrate better when you're happy. This is probably not really news if you think about it. You will. So you can do that and um, let it support you. It's also very, very helpful encountering the, encountering the judgmental mind. So, you know, when, remember the guy, the person who got the last cookie? Can you be happy for them instead of jealous and judgmental? You know, because often we get, we want what that other person has. And so enjoying their happiness sort of dispels that jealousy. Enjoy the happiness of the person who took your walking spot. May they really enjoy the beauty of that path. I've thought, I kind of invented a practice at one point, because you can do phrases, may you enjoy your happiness, may it last a long time, that kind of thing. But I thought, you know, you could do mudita exactly the same way you do compassion. You could breathe in, you know, the other person's happiness, what a nice thing. You know, breathe in eating that cookie or walking on that path. And then you breathe out your gladness and happiness for them. And so try it if you'd like. I think it's sort of an interesting way to work with uh, mudita. So then the last thing is upeka, equanimity. So, you know, that little band of monks and nuns, they needed some equanimity as they did that hike. I mean, you could imagine, some of you have been back up in the hills, you know what it's like up there. Um, So you could imagine that whether you're walking in the hills of Marin County at night or whether you're in the jungles of India, which is, of course, where the story came from, um, you need some steadiness. And so again, there are phrases to help you work with that. You know, may I be balanced and steady and things are the way they are. My wishes for things to be different cannot change them, only actions change things. I am the inheritor of my karma. Everything that has the nature to arise has the nature to pass away. And again, your mindfulness practice, just sitting here on the cushion and staying here helps to sustain presence and helps to develop equanimity. I got a note once at a retreat that said, if you were to get, if someone were to jump up in a sitting and yell out, ring the goddamn bell! Would it be an act of compassion to ring the bell? So my answer, after a moment of thought and a bit of laughter, was, no, I don't think it would be. But you know what? It never happens, does it? None of you has ever heard that. I mean, a few times when there's been some sit leader, usually not, well, sometimes it's one of the teachers, and they space out and they forget. Every now and then, you know, I've heard a couple of <clears throat> kinds of things. <laughs> you know, reminding people that it is indeed time to ring the bell. But I've never had a student do that. 
you have enough equanimity, you know, and you are able to have that steadiness that you need to make it to the end of the sitting, and we're practicing it. And equanimity, I think, also comes from as we develop a sense of perspective. And so that's, again, it's why I love those images of the galaxies and the cosmos. Because, you know, I'm so small. And how much does it, if I make a mistake, if I make a mistake, remember those lines from Robert Bly? Um, I read them the other night. You know, think, when someone knocks on the door, think that he's about to give you something large, tell you you're forgiven, or that it's not necessary to work all the time, or that it's been decided that if you lie down, no one will die. We are so small, no one will die. If I blow it, if I make, did I just lose, I did. (laughs) If I make a mistake, I do make mistakes, I make terrible mistakes sometimes. And, most, I haven't killed anybody yet, anyway, with my mistakes, I hope I don't ever do. Um, So we practice, and we practice develop, we develop um, equanimity by doing the practice, and then equanimity also becomes the fruit of the practice that we do. It is both path and fruit. So these practices are trainings. Every time you do one of them, you plant a seed, a seed of kindness and friendliness, of compassion, of joy, of equanimity, And we do the practices. It's really important to notice that you do them. You don't necessarily feel them. Feeling is extra. You might feel kind. You might feel compassionate. You might feel joyful. And you might feel that you have equanimity. But you might not feel any of them. And you do the practice anyway because it's planting the seed. The feeling is extra. It comes with time usually. Liberation does seem to come with meeting the difficulties head-on. It doesn't come with not having any difficulties. It comes with opening the heart gradually every time we encounter these hard places. It comes with asking the question, where is the liberation in this moment? How can I turn? How can I find a place? How can I be steady enough, unafraid enough to look for where is the freedom in this moment? How can I meet this situation with compassion, friendliness, joy, and balance? The well-trained heart knows how to be present. It's filled with goodwill for every being, or at least more and more. And it's able to be steady in the face of deepest pain and the greatest happiness. The trained heart can balance and can contain all circumstances. Ajahn Chah gave us a marvelous image for what this heart might look like, heart and mind. He says, your mind will become still. And the word citta in um, Pali and Sanskrit actually means heart-mind. So really he's saying when your, your heart-mind will become still in any surroundings, like a clear forest pool. All kinds of wonderful, rare animals will come to drink at the pool and you will clearly see the nature of all things. You will see many strange and wonderful things come and go, but you will be still. This is the happiness of the Buddha. 
So this enlarged heart, this great heart of wisdom, compassion, kindness, joy and equanimity has everything it needs to meet the difficulties of the world no matter how great they are. This is the heart of the Buddha. So one last poem. It's called Testimony. It's by a woman whose name is Rebecca Baggett. So this is spoken from that great heart. I want to tell you that the world is still beautiful. I tell you that despite children raped on city streets, shot down in schoolrooms, despite the slow poison seeping from old and hidden sins into our air, soil, water, despite the thinning film that encloses our aching world, despite my own terror and despair. I want you to know that spring is no small thing, that the tender grasses curling like a baby's fine hairs around your fingers are a recurring miracle. I want to tell you that the river rocks shine like God, that the crisp voices of the orange and gold October leaves are laughing at death. I want to remind you to look beneath the grass, to note the fragile hieroglyphs of ant, snail, beetle. I want you to understand that you are no more and no less necessary than the brown recluse, the ruby-throated hummingbird, the humpback whale, the profligate mimosa. I want to say, like Neruda, that I am waiting for a great and common tenderness, that I still believe we are capable of attention, that anyone who notices the world must want to save it. So let's just breathe together for a minute. May we all have hearts that are filled with a great and common tenderness. So thank you very much for listening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash
donate.